Well, once again, welcome back to Cedar Street Baptist Church. Good evening. It's good to be back in God's house as we continue our biblical basis study of understanding the Bible and we reach another landmark here today as we get to the end of section number two. Remember I said I want to answer five questions before we're done and I'm going to take a big deep breath in probably October and November when we get done and say, that's all I know about the Bible. (laughs) Um, But we're getting towards the end of the second question. The five questions are, what is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? What is the message of the Bible? Why can we trust the Bible? And how should we read the Bible? So the last six weeks, including today, we've been in the section two, which is, how did we get the Bible? And we walk through this entire process. And of course, if you look at number one, it's all Greek to me. We looked at this process of uh, God's revelation and the inspiration of His Spirit and it's uh, the duplication, canonization, preservation, and publication of God's Word through the sacrificial efforts of God's people. And that's taken us to where we are today. And the the big thing that I want to kind of circle around today is we've talked about how did we get the Bible. Now we're going to answer the question, how did we get so many Bible translations? Okay, your first blank there is the word translations. How did we get so many Bible translations? I remember when I first got saved, uh, this was, again, right after uh, 2006, uh, right after the baseball season, I had moved to Augusta, Georgia, placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I decided to go to a bookstore to buy my first Bible. And I stood in the Christian section of the bookstore, and I stared at about 50 different Bible translations, and I thought, what in the world do I do now? And I remember calling two of my Christian friends, and they gave me two completely different recommendations. So I didn't know what to do. First Bible I ever bought was an NIV Bible. Okay, I thought it's a pretty good translation. Uh, I had it for several months. I, I, eventually, I donated that first Bible I ever bought. I donated it to Bobby Chili here at the church and uh, bought an NIV study Bible. And then over the course of the last, uh, I think, seven or eight years, I've purchased maybe ten different translations. Okay, I've got... Uh, 1942 Schofield Reference uh, King James Version Bible. I have a new King James Version Bible, which is my family Bible, sitting on my coffee table. I have the ESV, which is what I preach from on Sunday mornings. This is the uh, Bible was given to me by this church at my ordination service back in 2013. I also have a New American Standard Version, a Holman Christian Standard Version. Again, another version of the New International version and uh, there's even one called God's Word. It's a translation called God's Word and I've been using that as well. So I've got a lot of great translations on my on my shelf here. So the question is, how did we get so many of them? Are they all useful? Is there one English translation that is superior to all others? Well, that's what we're going to talk about here tonight because I do think having the right translation for the right purposes is is what's going to help us grow in our knowledge and, and the truth as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Let's move on to number two, and our question is pinpointing the translation process. All right, pinpointing the translation process. To understand translation, we need to understand the practice that is used in translation. Your next blank there is what's called textual criticism. I'll spell it. Okay, textual is T-E-X-T-U-A-L, and then criticism is C-R-I-T-I-C. I-S-M. When you understand these two words, you'll get to understand how in the world we have so many different translations, okay? Textual criticism, it's not a negative word. It sounds negative, right? 
Criticism sounds like something that we criticize, something that we put down, something that we attack. Not necessarily in this context. In this context, textual criticism is how scholars would analyze all of those manuscript copies of the original scriptures. All right, so we said, we said in previous sessions that basically we do not have the original scriptures. We don't have the original Greek or Hebrew of what was written down when God spoke to all the apostles and prophets. As they're writing it down, we don't have those original copies. Those are called the autographs. They've all been destroyed over the course of time, and we don't have them. And I said last week, it's okay that we don't have them. They didn't keep them around because they didn't think they needed them because all, what they did was made a lot of copies. Scribes would make copy after copy after copy, and those copies would be distributed. And over the course of time, through archaeological discoveries, we have found thousands and thousands of manuscript copies of the Old and New Testament, more so than any book that's ever been written in human history. We've got a wealth of experience, a wealth of evidence that shows us how important this Bible has been since the very beginning of literature, since the very beginning of literacy. So, how do you take all these hundreds of manuscript copies and begin to whittle it down to a, to a single translation? Well, the, the practice, the art and discipline of that is called textual criticism. So you have these scholars, they're called text critics. Again, they're not criticizing the text. What they're doing is analyzing them. So picture, picture these godly men and women, okay, who, who are in this room, and these manuscripts are spread all over the table, and they're looking, analyzing. I mean, these, this is a very specific practice that I think only 0.1% of the world can do because you have to be rooted and deeply trained in the languages, but you also have to have a mind that can analyze data. Okay, you have to be able to analyze. And so what they do is they look through all these different manuscripts and they start looking for inconsistencies. We said, I think two weeks ago or last week, that the inconsistencies are what, what are called variants. And those variants, there's a lot of them, but again, that shouldn't scare us because there's so many copies. And most of the variants are just spelling errors. Again, think about this. When scribes had to rewrite the Bible, they did everything by hand. They didn't have spell check. So if they missed a certain punctuation mark, if they missed one letter and you had a misspelling there, that's a variant. And that manuscript copy may look different than those five or six manuscript copies. But because we have so many, we're able to catch all of the mistakes. Okay, that's what's called textual criticism. But when you look at the, the translations of the Bible that we have in English today, and this may be the most technical part of our lesson tonight, so if this does not excite you, don't go to sleep on me. We'll get to the exciting part at the end. Okay? But so, like all the translations that we typically read today, okay, in this room, probably King James Version, New King James Version, the NI, New International Version, the ESV, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, whatever the K, whatever version, New Living Translation, another big one that many of you have, that's the one that uh, the Guidos have recommended recently that has the reading plan for the entire year. Okay, whatever translation you have, that translation was used or was put together using one of the three that I list here below as these main texts that help us get to the original intent. So there's three different ways in which most English translations are used. I'm going to walk through these three, okay? The first thing is, what you call, is what's called the, the textus receptus, all right? That simply means received text in, uh, in Latin. And here, basically, here's what happened. So this is the time of the Reformation in Europe, okay? This is 16th century uh, Europe, and, and all of a sudden, they're wanting to get these strong translations of the Bible, but you have so many manuscripts, so what do you do? 
Well, a scholar named Erasmus, he took several of the manuscripts that he could find that were the most complete, and through that, he pieced together what he believed the original text of Scripture was saying. And so in 1516, he puts together what they call the Textus Receptus. All right, so this Textus, textus Receptus is a document that contains the best of the, of the seven or ten manuscripts that were available at the time, and the manuscripts that he used were from 12, the 12th century, and he pieced them together. He analyzed them to see what each sentence was saying, and he pieced together this Greek New Testament in 1516. And a lot of English translations, including the King James Version, came from this document. All right? Now, let's move down to the second one, the critical text. Now, here's what happened. After the 1500s, when people were digging up other archaeological discoveries, they found older manuscript copies. They found some that went all the way back to the 4th century. And two scholars, okay, it says here in 1881, two scholars, Brookfoss Westcott and Fenton J.A. Hort got together, and they took these older 4th century manuscript copies, and they made their own Greek New Testament, and that one is known as the critical text. The critical text uses these two old, specifically these two old, very comprehensive manuscripts. All right, I know this is all technical, but it says the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sieticus. I've looked at these in class before. These are some of the oldest manuscripts, and they're the most complete. And so they use those to build another Greek New Testament. And some of the newer translations, like the ESV that we have today, are being used from that particular translation. Then you get down to the third one, and the third one's not just a document, it's an approach. It's called the majority text. And here's the the way of approaching that. Some scholars want to get as many manuscripts together, they want to lay them all out on the table, and they piece together each sentence by what the majority of the manuscripts have to say. And so... These are three different approaches in how to translate the ancient Greek, the ancient Hebrew, and the ancient Aramaic into a modern English translation. There's different ways to do it. The translations read a little bit differently because of it, but we have to understand the Greek and the Hebrew have not changed. We're just approaching it in a different way. Okay, We're just approaching it in a different way. So I know that was technical. Let's get to the stuff that I know you really want to know about. Okay, So let's move on to, uh, to number three, breaking through the barriers. All right. I I remember when I first got saved, I said, you know what? Just give me the English translation that is the most literal word-for-word translation of the Hebrew and the Greek. Hit me with it. That's what I want. I want the best. I want the most accurate, literal word-for-word translation. And then I realized something. There's a reason why, as literal as some of these English translations are, there's no English translation that can be perfectly literal because the Greek and the Hebrew language is so much different than the English language. And I'm going to tell you a few reasons why, all right, as we look at number three here. Here's some of the issues, all right? There's cultural and historical gaps. There's language inconsistencies. There's figures of speech. And there's word order, all right? Let me give you a few examples of this, okay? First, the Greek language has numerous words to describe what we call love. All right? You ever think it's weird that you say that to your wife, I love you, but then you also talk about how much you love your television or how much you love your car or how much you love your dog? Isn't it unfair that you use the same word to describe how you feel about your dog that you do with your wife? 
Well, the English language is not as deep as the Greek. The Greek language is just beautiful. It has so many individual words that help describe things that we lack in English. All right, so one of the things when it comes to love, in the Greek you have agape love, which is a deep committed love that God has for us sacrificially. You have erotic eros. Eros is the romantic love. All right, then you have phileo, which is more of a brotherly love. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, came from the Greek root phileo. Okay, we in English just have love. So when we're translating, it's hard to, to, to make that translation from agape or phileo or eros or whatever the case may be to English because the words don't, there's not a one-to-one correspondence. And so scholars have to be able to look at that, see what it meant, and then move it over. Now another issue, and your next, your next uh, blanks there are the, the two words, word order. Okay, word order. Word order is huge. I didn't, read, I didn't realize this until I took my first Greek class. If I was to take a Greek New Testament and just write out in English exactly what it says in Greek, like for instance, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in, in Him would not perish but have eternal or everlasting life, depending on your translation. Well, I translated that from Greek, and I don't have the Greek in front of me, so I'm just going off the cuff here. But basically, in Greek it would look something like, for so loved the God world that only He, Son, gave. I mean, that's, exactly, that's how it would translate because the word order in Greek means so much more than it does in English. The way that a word is used and the order that it's used tells you what it means in Greek. Our English language is much different. So because of that, when scholars are looking at Greek, they're saying, okay, how do I keep its literal translation but also bring the meaning so people in English can understand what in the world it means? And because of that, there's different ways to approach it. So there are some struggles that we've got to get over to get to the, to the literal meaning. So how do we do that? Well, there's, there's four main approaches that I want to talk about as we move on to number four, analyzing various approaches. Okay? There's four different major approaches, and if you have more than one translation of the Bible at your house, you have a Bible that has probably multiple different approaches. Okay? The first one, and your blank there, is formal equivalence. I'll spell it. Formal is F-O-R-M-A-L. Equivalence is E-Q-U-I-V-A-L-E-N. C-E. Formal equivalence. That simply means word for word. All right? A word for word translation. To the very best of their ability, they're taking what it says in the Greek, what it says in the Hebrew, and what it says in the Aramaic, and they're giving you a word for word translation, a rendering of the original languages whenever possible. Okay? Then you have B, if you look in your notes there, dynamic equivalence. That's a thought for thought translation. Okay? They don't worry so much about the literal meaning that they're worrying about communicating what the meaning of the passage actually was. In a few minutes, I'll talk about which translation you have and which one it fits under. All right, so you have word for word, you have thought for thought, then you have C, which is middle road, and that's a balance between word for word and thought for thought. And what scholars do with that approach is they say, okay, in each paragraph, we're going to look at it, we're going to say, does it make sense to do it literally, or do I have to give what basically the author's trying to say? They're trying to make it readable, for people in the English language. And then you get down to D, the fourth and final one is just paraphrase. Paraphrase is not even really a translation. Paraphrase is looking at what it says and then rewriting it in a simpler way. 
All right? We'll talk more in a few minutes. If you've ever read the message from Eugene Peterson, that's a paraphrase. He's not, he's not at all trying to translate any words from Greek to English or Hebrew to English. He's reading it in the Hebrew and he's saying, how do I say that to English readers today? And he's just giving you a paraphrase. And there's nothing wrong with that if you use it for what it's intended for. I would never preach from the message, but I certainly would read it in my devotional time. So those are the different approaches. Man, we're going to fly through this pretty quick. What I really want to spend some time on is... Uh, Number six, but let's, start, let's go to number five. So before we look at all the English translations, let's stop for just a minute and say over the history of time since the very beginning of the Bible, there's been some really good translations in other languages that have greatly influenced us. All right, so let's look at a few, okay? You look right, um, I'm sorry, the next blank there is the word influential, okay, for number five. The next blank there is the word influential, Several influential translations written through throughout the world that help spread the gospel of Christ. So what are they? Well, one that you've never read, I'm sure, because you probably don't read Greek, but you should know about, is what's called the Septuagint. All right? you don't, I don't need to spell it because it's in your notes. But it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was written around th- the 3rd century B.C. Why is this important? I'm going to tell you why. Because Jesus Christ, when He was on the earth, would have been reading... The Septuagint, all right? In the, in the world that he was living in, it was mostly a Greek-speaking world at that time, so the, the Septuagint would have been something that, that Christ himself would have been reading from, all right, along with some Aramaic and some Hebrew as well, all right? So that was the predominant translation of Hebrew into Greek, all right? Not only that, you have what is called the Latin Vulgate, all right? That's a Latin translation of the Bible written in 384 A.D., Then you have the German Bible. Martin Luther completed that in 1534. And then for people that always say the KJV is the best because it's the oldest English Bible, it's not true. We said last week that there's the Tyndale Bible, there's the Coverdale Bible. Well, in uh, 1560, there was what's known as the Geneva Bible, which is a tremendous translation and probably the best one of the day until the King James came out. And by the way, King James was much better than the Geneva Bible. It was a more comprehensive translation. So... Let's move on down to number six, and this is where we're going to spend a little bit more time. I wish I had more room on the paper because I would have really spent some time in this one. All right, so when you look at an English translation, in fact, let me just ask by show of hands, how many here read nothing but the King James? Okay. What about the NIV? Okay. What about the ESV? All right. What about the NASB, the New American Standard? Okay. And we got a really, what about the, uh, the New Living Translation? All right, any, any that I'm missing? Okay, the New Geneva. And, and, and I, we just mentioned the Geneva, all right? Another good translation, okay? So a lot of different English translations, all used in this room right now. Well, let's get down to the nitty-gritty and talk about the differences between all of them because here's what I'm hoping that's going to happen after this study tonight. You're going to have more encouragement and you're going to have more confidence in the translation that you have. Because I don't, right now, I think all the translations that were mentioned are good ones if we know what they're intended to be used for. All right, so let's start with uh, the elephant in the room. A, King James, 1611. Here's what I'm going to do. Tell you the year it was first written, the philosophy in which it was used, and the reading level of which it is written in, okay? So King James, originally written in 1611, all right, it was edited several times until 1769, 
but it's written by formal equivalents, which means word for word, okay? The King James is a word for word translation, and it's written at a 12th grade reading level, okay? Let's move on to the NIV, the New International Version. Okay, the original version was written in 1978. There were, there were two major revisions. One was in 1984, and the other, I believe, was in the early 2000s. Uh, it's a middle road translation, so in parts it's word for word, and in parts it's thought for thought. All right? And it was written in a sixth grade reading level. So if you have the NIV, it's a little bit easier to understand. All right, number C, you have what I read from. Your next blank there is the English Standard Version. Okay, the English Standard Version. All right, the ESV, as it's known, it was first translated in 2001. It's a formal, which means word-for-word translation, and it's written at an eighth-grade reading level. Okay, so when I'm preaching this book in the mornings, I'm reading hopefully at a level that within eighth-grade minds can pretty much understand, and we have kindergarten through third grade that go to children's church, so the fourth through the seventh graders, I'm calling them to raise their level of understanding just a little bit. But it's still, I think, a pretty good translation to read from. Then you have D, the New American Standard Version. All right, it was first written in 1971. It's also a word-for-word translation, and it's a little bit more in-depth. It's an 11th grade reading level. Okay, now we have a few more. The New Living Translation. The New Living Translation was written in 1996. It's a dynamic equivalent, which means it's a thought-for-thought, and it's written at a 6th grade level. And then finally you have... The message, and the message was written in 2002 by Eugene Peterson. It's a paraphrase, and it was written at a sixth grade reading level. All right, so the key here is not to say, what is the superior English translation because there's not one. The key here is to say, what am I using it for? Okay, and we'll get to that towards the end. But the key is, when when I'm preaching, for instance, I want to have a literal word-for-word translation because I'm trying to get the accurate description of what was put in the original text and the meaning, and I'm trying to communicate it to our people. All right, I use the English Standard Version because I think it's a good translation. Do I think it's superior? No. In fact, a lot of Bibles, Bible translations, they have several committees who came together to do them. And they spent a lot of money on scholars to do one testament and less money on scholars to do the other testament. So, for instance, the New American Standard is probably the best Bible with the English Old Testament because they spent most of their money on on Hebrew scholars. So the Hebrew to, to English is tremendous. The New American Standard has a great Old Testament. Now, the ESV... I believe, has a very good New Testament because they've hired some of the greatest Greek scholars of today to be a part of that translation. One of my favorite writers, J.I. Packer, was part of the general council who oversaw the translation of the ESV. There's some great biblical scholars, some Baptist scholars named uh, Tom Schreiner and some other men who got together and were part of the translation committee. So that's a very good Greek New Testament translation. All right. Then you talk about devotional purposes. I think the two best devotional Bibles today would probably be the NIV and the New Living Translation. If someone came to me and had never, ever read a Bible, and I've had some come to me in the past year and say, Brother Bo, what do I read? I would say, here's a New Living Translation study Bible. Start with the book of Genesis and then the Gospels and just read. All right. Now, again, when they come to church, there's ESV Pew Bibles that I'd like for them to read along with. 
but I think the New Living Translation is a wonderful devotional reading, and, and I use it in my own study to try to measure if there's, if there's things I don't quite understand in the ESV. Sometimes the, the New Living can really shed light on it and say, oh, that's, that's kind of the gist of what he's, what he's going after. And then, of course, again, there's the message. The message is different than almost every other Bible translation out there. Eugene Peterson, if you don't know, was a pastor and a scholar who was very convicted at the turn of the 21st century that there'd be another translation of the Bible that was a lot more reader-friendly, that showed a lot more emotion and drive behind the text. And so he literally sat down from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, and he gave a paraphrase of every paragraph of the Bible. It must have taken him several years to do it, but if you've ever read anything Eugene Peterson says, he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and he's, he's just, he was a phenomenal pastor and author. Um, as much as I love to read his stuff, he's very deep in a lot of the things that he says, but yet the message was a book that he did not try to write at a deep level. He just wanted his people to understand it. He wanted his people to, to love and to grow in the, in the admonition of the Lord by reading his word. So it's a, good, it's a good translation. But I think here's where we struggle, and we're going to move on here to, uh, to number seven. And we'll get some dialogue going here because I want to know if you have any questions that I might be able to help with. But um, the, next one, the next question is, will only 1611 get me to heaven? All right, I have some friends of mine who absolutely love the King James Version, and we've come up with these jokes over the years. They'll say, if the king ain't on it, the king ain't in it. Or 1611 will get you to heaven. Or if, it, or if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Billy Graham used to always make that joke. So, why is it that some people cling to the KJV more than any other translation and say, it's the KJV or nothing, because there's a lot of churches that do that? Well, I think it's because of a good reason, but an unfounded one, and I'll tell you why. I believe it's called the philosophical fallacy of the appeal to tradition. The appeal to tradition is, if it's the oldest, it's got to be the best. It's been the most tried and tested and proven to be true. That's Therefore, as the world changes, we're not going to change. We're going to cling to the, to the KJV. We're not going to let go. Well, let me say this. The King James Version is a great translation if you understand it. If you were raised up in it and you don't have to sit down for an extra hour and translate the these and the vows and the brethren and all the other words that we don't use anymore, if you understand those words then I, I want to encourage you, keep reading it, because it is a beautiful translation. Part of our, our wonderful English language, you know, as our language has evolved, some of that beautiful poetic prose that was used in the King James Version is, is gone. I had a brother of, of mine uh, in Christ who I studied with at the First Baptist Church of Rinkin at a Bible study several years ago, and he said, Bo, I can't let go of my King James for one reason. He said, it's so beautiful that I just can't capture it, the beauty in any other translation. And I said, brother, I'm glad that God has moved in your heart in such a way that you have such a, a dedication to that translation. Keep reading it. I do think it's a beautiful translation. The problem is I don't speak King James English, and neither does our congregation for the most part. So let's say I preach from King James, which I know a lot of preachers do. I would need an extra 10 minutes every Sunday to translate old King James to new King James, and then the New King James, to what it actually means in our lives today. Whereas when I read the ESV, most people understand that language, so I don't have to spend the extra time translating the words. Most people understand them. But there have been churches that I've gone to to preach revival where I know that everybody in there knows and understands the King James, and I'll preach from King James because that's what I know they understand. And again, I think it's a good translation. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. That, 
if, if you're scared of trying a different translation because you've always thought there's nothing but the KJV, let me just refute some, some, some arguments that have been going on for a couple of years now. All right. What factors go into saying that there's no authoritative English translation? Well, let's look at these factors. Okay. You may have guessed that uh, the three words, the blanks there are King James Version. That's the next three blanks there for number seven. Okay. King James Version. But let's look at these factors. All right. First of all, the, the English language has evolved. And by the way, I'm not exactly thrilled with how it's evolving either. All right, I mentioned this before that uh, we're butchering the English language in social media and through text messaging and, and all the things that we're doing now. And it's gonna, it, the, there's going to come a time, and it's already happening in the classrooms. I, said, I think I said this last week, where teachers are, are calling parents and saying, your children are writing essays in text message format. They're already, they're already breaking down the English language into incomprehensible symbols because they're used to typing their phones or tweeting in 140 characters or less on Twitter. So we're butchering the English language. It's getting worse. I mean, it really is. I wish we all still read it at King James level. I really do, because it's a rich, beautiful language. But the, the world is, is not going that, in that direction. That we're changed, The language is changing every day. And as the language changes, and thousands of words are no longer being used, and thousands of new words are being used, we have to look at Bibles... At, at the original Greek and Hebrew and say, okay, how do I translate this into a language that people in 2017 can understand and be saved? And that's the work that we have to do. All right? Also, I want to say that there's more updated scholarship available now than there was back when some of these older translations were put together. I said before that the King James was written from what's called the Textus Receptus. We listed that in the very beginning of our time together tonight. Those were based on manuscripts that were found from the 12th century. Well, after 1611, they discovered manuscripts that were from the 4th century. So we can't say the King James is the oldest because the manuscripts used from it are not the oldest, and it's not the oldest English translation. We just said the Geneva Bible is older than the King James. So it's not the oldest. It's not the most uh, accurate with language. And it's also been updated several times. This was proof. We just read one version from Brother Clinton, another one from Brother Bob, and that's okay because that's what happens with Bible translations. They evolve because scholars are trying to get the most accurate translation that they possibly can. They're trying to be faithful. And the more that we study, the more that we learn. So, I do want to say this. The KJV, wonderful translation. If you know it, read it, enjoy it. And know this too, as I preach from the ESV each week, I do not believe that this right here is superior. I think it's a good one, and I want to be consistent in what I preach so that when people are listening and they're reading, they can understand. But there are no superior English translations. The superior version is the original Greek and the original Hebrew and Aramaic, and none of us speak those languages fluently, so we need something in English to help us along the way. And so that leads me to our final point, and then we'll have some time of discussion here. Finding your best fit. Okay, finding your best fit. So you're at the bookstore. You're buying a Bible. Which one should you get? There are new Bibles coming out every single day in different translations. There are also study Bibles that are coming out with different notes. All right, on my shelf I have a uh, systematic theology study Bible a biblical theology study Bible, an archaeology study Bible, 
a chronological study Bible. Brother Jody back there's got an apologetic study Bible. All right, there's new ones coming out every day, and they're helpful because most of those Bibles, the, the things that are changing are the notes that are scholars are helping us to understand verse by verse. All right, some of you may have a topical study Bible. Some of you may have, uh, I had a brother at the last church we went to, it was a rainbow study Bible where all these different areas of Scripture were highlighted in different colors already so that you could kind of study chronologically and study different topics. There's so many different wonderful Bibles out there. So the two questions you have to ask yourself when you're looking to buy a Bible are this. Two questions, okay? What is your current reading level, okay? And the second one, what is your ultimate? And your last blank there is the word purpose. What's your purpose? Are you studying because you want to be more of a scholar? You want to know a literal word-for-word translation? Are you studying because you simply want to have a greater time of devotion with the Lord? Are you studying because there's a certain aspect of the Christian faith you want to know better, whether it's philosophical, whether it's, against systematic theology or biblical theology, or maybe you want to know more about the archaeology and the history of the Bible? What, do you want to, what is your purpose in reading it? So I get to this very end and say this, I don't think the question is, what translation should I read? I think the question is plural. What translations, plural, should I read? One of the best gifts that I was ever given, Larry Guido gave me what's called a parallel Bible. And the parallel Bible has four translations of each passage, and they're parallel, laying next to each other. In one Bible, I have the New King James, the ESV, the New Living Translation, and the Message, all in one Bible. So when I turn to a passage, I can already get four different approaches on how that word's being translated. In fact, you don't have to go out and buy a physical Bible if you have the internet. There's plenty of websites that do that. If you go to BibleGateway.com, I'm on that every day. BibleGateway.com, you can check any translation that has ever come out. It's amazing. And you can even pull them up and line them up side by side on your computer screen so you can analyze four or five different translations at one time. It is amazing the resources that God has given us that we could read and know his word in a language that we understand. And I mentioned this before that um, there's an organization called the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and what they're trying to do is to get translations of the Bible into every known language as quickly as possible. And they think in the next 20 years, they will get it to every civilized society in the world. And when that happens, I believe that's the final straw before Jesus comes back. He's waiting for his word to reach all four corners of the earth. And we pray that that Bible gets into as many hands as soon as possible. That's why I'm grateful for the Gideons. And I'm grateful for Wycliffe Bible Associates and Bible translators. I'm grateful for missionaries who risk their lives smuggling Bibles into countries and doing everything they can to get God's word into a language that they understand. I love the Bible. And God has done so much to get it to us in our hands in a way that we can understand it. And so one of the reasons I'm so passionate, specifically this week, in this particular topic, is I just want to make sure that we embrace and don't get uncomfortable with the different translations that we're reading because they all have benefits somehow. I really believe that. Now, I do think we're going to reach a day where English translations are going to come out that are not faithful. In fact, there's only one that I would not recommend you buy. And that's the TNIV, not the NIV, but the TNIV came out a few years ago and they, they didn't want to be incorrect politically. 
So they took out all the he's, all the pronouns that had God and, and other things listed as masculine, and they started putting gender-neutral pronouns in there. So there was no he versus she. They wanted to, to even it out and, and not be politically incorrect because, of course, most of the time when the Bible talks about human beings, it says man. Well, they didn't want to be offensive, so they took man out. Well, I would not recommend that. I don't think that, of all the translations available, I don't think we need to necessarily go there. I don't think it's, 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 a, it's an abomination, but I don't think it's necessary, to be honest with you. But as of today, 2017, I would say that you can, you can put your faith and your trust in the English translations that are available at your local bookstore. Just understand the purpose of them. Okay, if you want a word for word, get you a King James, get a new King James, get an ESV, get an NASB. Okay, if you want a dynamic equivalent, a thought for thought, all right, you're going to want to go ahead and get a New Living Translation. You want somewhere in the middle? All right, you're going to want to get an NIV, or you may want to get a new Holman Christian Standard. Um, they're changing their name, by the way. The Holman Christian Standard, which came out from Lifeway, which is typically a Baptist publication, the, the new Holman Christian Standard is now be, going to be known simply as the Christian Standard Bible. All right, so I have actually, it's very interesting, um, at the seminary where I worked in the registrar's office, a couple of the Ph.D. students who recently graduated who I helped get their diploma, they're the ones that are on the committee that are updating that Bible. So it's kind of neat that I, I'm friends with some of the people who are putting together some of these new translations. I'm going to stick to the ESV for at least the next few years. Why? Because our church just made a $2,000 investment on few Bibles. So I probably will not be switching that up anytime soon. But be, be rest assured. There, hey, listen, there are some, you get to some passages of Scripture and I just have to look and say, you know, the KJV, it does a much, much better job than the ESV in translating this passage. And then saying, you know, maybe the New American Standard's better in this passage. You, you do the best you can with the tools God's given you. But, I, you know, I, I, let me say this. I don't care what version we read, but let's read the Bible. Whatever version we have, let's read it. And let's not let the small things get in between us because what's happened recently, if you, if you haven't paid attention, and I pray that you really haven't because it's not really worth paying attention to, but in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been what's called the KJV-only controversy, and it's been stirred up by a small group of people in Florida, and it's ripped churches apart. It's ripped them to pieces, and it's not worth arguing about. You know, we talked about third, second, third-tier issues. That's a third-tier issue, what translation of the Bible that you're reading. Now, if you had a pastor standing behind the pulpit who did not read a word-for-word translation and refused to believe the Bible was God's infallible, inerrant word, yeah, I would pull him aside and say, we need to have a talk. In fact, I wouldn't hire him until you know his conviction on that. But I would say, let's not let small things pull us apart. I it blesses me to know we've got about seven different translations of the Bible in this room here right now because we're all trying to get to the answer. We're trying to get to the root of what it says.